So, some reflections on our on our theme of the essential freeness that is our nature, and the habitual friction that is seems to be our tendency. And yesterday, in the afternoon, I reflected a little bit on um, our capacity to kind of freely inhabit experience, regardless of some of the things that can swirl around, and some of the uncomfortable things or unpleasant things that can swirl around, some of the pulls, habitual pulls or strong pulls, emotional pulls, instinctual pulls, obsessive pulls that can kind of hijack our attention and how we might uh, kind of find our way uh, in the midst of those things into a freer way of inhabiting them. And having spoken a little bit about that kind of, of freely abiding in the midst of experience yesterday, uh, today I'd like to look at uh, our capacity for freely knowing experience. And in this way to you know, look at a different nuance of freeness. Freeness is the essential um, hallmark of a deepening practice, an essential hallmark of liberation, the essential taste that runs through our experience when our experience is no longer contracted by the demands and defenses and distractions and dramas and all that we were speaking about earlier. That freeness can have all kinds of different nuances right? in different moments. There's the freeness, like we spoke about yesterday, of just being in the midst of. There's the freeness of being able to just allow experience. There's the freeness of a deep intimacy with experience. There's the freeness of seeing and knowing the real clarity of mind that can be brought to bear on elements of experience. There's the freeness of being able to love what arises, whether or not we like what's arising. And amidst those different nuances or facets or angles, we might say, from which a free consciousness can meet experience, Freely abiding, freely knowing, freely loving, uh, freely engaging, freely responding, etc. It's nevertheless the consistency, the sense of love or the sense of presence or the sense of clarity itself or the sense of peace may not be consistent, right? Because those are all changing states, even though they might be free states, liberated states deep states, they nevertheless, like every other state of mind, they come and go. Sometimes we might have a particularly peaceful state or a particularly deep state, a particularly clear state, and we think, oh, that's, that's, that's it, that clarity, that peace, that stillness, that bliss, that love, that feeling of interconnection. 
But that's not it. Because that particular feeling, like any other feeling, comes and goes. It may be that it has particular depth and beauty and importance. It may be that there's deep insights can come out of those states. But themselves, they just, they're like sand running through our fingers. Right? No state of mind lasts. Even the most sublime state of mind. What's the longest you've ever had a mind state last for? It's a good question, no? I wouldn't know how to answer it myself, but except for not very long, right? <laughs> not very long at all, in fact. When we're inside a mind state, sometimes when we're inside a difficult mind state, we can treat it as if it's here for a long time. And we, oh my God, this mind state, oh no, I feel like this, I don't want to feel like this. And we generate a lot of drama and strategy, how can I get rid of this? But just think back of every mind state you've ever had. They're really not very sticky mind states. We treat them as if they're very sticky, but they're all gone. They've all passed away. Kind of amazing. Worth reflecting on. So that when we're in the midst of a mind state, and in the midst of sort of doing battle with it in some way, maybe we can remind ourselves, hey, this isn't here for long. Maybe it's worthy of a little care, attention, interest, uh, so as to usher it more easefully along its way. And in the same way, the mo- those most, the most sublime meditation experience you ever had, the most, the deepest insight you ever had, the, the, that kind of sublime sense of knowing what's what, or knowing what meditation is, or knowing that uh, the sense of self that you've always taken to be solid is actually kind of ephemeral and unfindable. How long did that great insight last? Or at least, how long did the experience that brought that great insight to your attention last? Right. So the particular feeling may be very free, f- may have a very free feeling to it, freely present, freely knowing, freely loving, freely expansive. But the expansiveness, the sense of presence, the quality of care or love, just is inconsistent, inevitably. But that which can be really consistent throughout all our changing experience is the sense or the taste of freeness itself. One can and one does increasingly know the freeness of one's being. Freeness with which one can meet and navigate and respond to whatever's happening. There's a beautiful line of the Buddhas, which I, I had a very big impact on me when I first heard it, and I and I continue. I don't know, maybe thirty years later, still to find it really incredibly sweet. He says. Just as all the oceans share the same taste, the taste of salt, so true, so too, all true teachings share the same taste, the taste of freeness. That 
Oh, then that which in the in the tradition is sometimes called the one taste. One taste. One taste that can endure through pleasure and displeasure. Through ease and through difficulty, through clarity and through confusion. Through comfort and through discomfort. My capacity to meet it freely. So, today, as I say, we looked a little at this, at the freeness of just inhabiting whatever experience is happening. And today I'd like to, like to look at the freeness of knowing. One of the most essential deep qualities of consciousness right is that consciousness by its nature knows and i think we said before we tend it's so it's so fundamental to having any kind of experience right that the experience is known it's revealed in consciousness it's so fundamental so all encompassing that we tend to overlook it and we overlook that sort of fundamental knowing that has real depth and importance for us. That fundamental knowing that really is deserving of us just landing in it, feeling around in it, letting that a kind of fundamental knowing or primordial knowing, preconceptual knowing, or at least non-conceptual knowing, kind of come forward. And there's a certain way, right, that, that basic knowing is there just as a function of being alive, right? But it's very, very diffuse in babies, for example. Babies don't have any structure to their knowing, right? They don't have a conceptual framework, don't have language, they don't, haven't developed yet any kind of sense-making apparatus. But they're conscious. You know, look, look at a, look into a baby's eyes, hang out with the baby, play with the baby. Oh, something's going on, right? But it's preconceptual, and then slowly the kind of cognitive apparatus, the psychological apparatus, starts to develop, right? and then language forms, and the sense of differentiating between inner and outer, between a sense of self and a sense of world forms. And all of this has been well studied. It's, if you look at developmental psychology, there's some very pretty fine models for understanding how our normal conceptual apparatus forms. Right. Until a, a, ch a baby and each one of us, you know, as we went through that process, forms the capacity to know in a conceptual way. And that's an it's such an amazing thing. We say, wow, now we've got language. We sort of take it for granted, but we maybe also recognize that it's extraordinary. Right? The capacity not just to, to know in a basic way of consciousness, but to able then to actually stand back from what we're knowing and to know about it. To generate ideas about our experience, to have knowledge of our experience, to know in an abstract sense, in an objective sense. Here's a subject standing back here called me. 
looking at an object called whatever it is, right? and then oh, I'm thinking about it. And, oh yes, it's this, it's that. I like it. I don't like it, etc. And then we really start to kind of then our knowing grows in a certain kind of way. Right? It grows and flourishes as a conceptual knowing, and that pretty much takes over. That becomes the main way we use our minds, and for most people, it becomes pretty much the only way they ever know how to use their minds, by thinking about things. And so much so that you know you can remember back. Mostly, we can remember back until about when language started, right? when we started to be able to form a conceptual relationship with the world. And if you think, when's your earliest memory? Right? Most people, it's sometime about two, uh, three years old, sometimes late in the two year years old, early in the three years old. Just around this time, you started formulating language and concept. So language and concept become so much our, our operate apparatus for knowing that it's, it's all we don't know. We can try to remember back before we had language and concept and we, we can't remember there. Right? It's not because we weren't conscious there. Look at a pre-linguistic baby, they're conscious. But we can't access pre-conceptual memory because we don't know how to use non-conceptual mind. Oh, we'll, I'll come back to that in a, in a bit, maybe. Let's see how we circle around. So, we develop this kind of knowing, which is a knowing about. And it's a very sophisticated knowing. It's helpful. You know, you know all kinds of things, I'm sure. I'm sure you know lots and lots of things. From the sophisticated and the specialized, right? Whatever your field of work is, for example, or your field of special interest, that you may know a lot about some arcane matter or some something in your particular field. And then we know about a whole kind of everyday stuff. We know, oh, what to do, where to go, we know how to get to Gaia House. If we don't know how to get to Gaia House, we know how to find out how to get to Gaia House. And that's how you all got here. And you know that's 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 just the stuff of life. So much so that we take it for granted, and so much so that we might not see it as a conditioned way of using our mind. And so much so that most people never think beyond. Well, maybe there's a different way to use our mind. And also so much so that at some point, most of us start to feel a little, not only appreciative of how we're able to think and know about and reflect upon experience, but also start to feel a little hemmed in by our own knowing about things. Know about things, I know about things so much and so well and so fully that I'm not able to get underneath that. I know so much about trees that I'm not able to see the tree. There's nothing worse than going for a walk with a tree expert. Right? I mean, I'm sort of joking because I actually love trees and I like to be able to recognize the different kinds of 
trees and the different you know the forms the guy house has you know some fabulous trees there's a few of the big oaks out there and the big plane tree you know and then you reflect on how old trees are so you know, it can be rich but also you know i went for I was once walking with a tree expert and the poor person knew so much about the trees that all of the appreciation, and there was a lot of love for and a lot of appreciation for the trees, the age of the tree, the type of the tree, the conditions the tree was growing in, etc. But knew so much that all the knowledge about the trees got in the way of just knowing the tree, getting to know the tree. You know, these trees here, you don't need to know anything about these trees. You might wonder, wow, that oak in the front's huge. I wonder how old it is. I don't know. You don't know. I don't know if somebody at Gaia House knows. But we don't need to know anything about it to get to know that tree. You want to get to know that tree? Just hang out with it. Hang out underneath it. Sit with it. Walk around it. You might find you can really get to know trees. Trees are quite magnificent beings. Trees are very benef uh, beneficent, benevolent, benevolent beings. I've never met a malicious tree. Right? Really, really. I don't mean that in a in a uh, in a way to suggest trees are neutral and therefore incapable of being malevolent. I actually they're benevolent. Trees are incredible. They just they just give they give their shade, they give tree leaves, they give shelter to birds. And if you really get to know a tree, you can feel its benevolence. Especially old trees. Trees that have really had time. Time means a few hundred years. Right. Or a couple of weeks ago I was in California with some trees that got a couple of thousand years. Right. They've had time to develop their heart. You know. Time to really grow into that that essential tree nature, which is a benevolent nature. So we can speculate, you and I, you can like what I say or not like, agree or disagree, or just think, is he mad? It's a tree, for God's sake. Right? But in a way, if we start to speculate about whether or not trees are benevolent or not, or whether or not trees can have the degree of sophistication of consciousness that Martin seems to be according them, in a way that's symptomatic of our problem. <laughs> right? If we think we know about trees, and whether what I'm saying now fits with our model or not. So the invitation isn't to fit it into our model, or to exclude it from our model, or even to adapt our model to agree or disagree. It's just leave, leave aside the model. What if we were to leave aside what we think we know? And a tree is just one example. I can apply it to everything else in life. To put aside a little what we think we know, which is also important and useful, right? And just get to know. Get to know the tree. Get to know life in that rather direct way, intimate way. A kind of full spectrum knowing. 
a knowing that has more nuance to it and more depth to it and more sensitivity to it than just knowing about, right? which is just the, the rather narrow kind of cognitive knowing. A full spectrum knowing is an embodied knowing where we're listening, in this case, to the tree, and you're listening with your cells, actually. Listening with the whole of the sensitive apparatus that you are, that your organism is. Rather than just listening, you know, as we normally do, either with our ears or even not. Often, mostly, we're just listening with our minds. And listen to what people say oh, with our minds. And that listening is full up with our own uh, responses or agreements or disagreements. And of course, if we're speaking to somebody else, we might, you know, it might be important to agree or disagree, to discuss, etc. But equally important, or maybe more important, is to be able to actually listen to the whole of the person. Not just what they're saying, but the whole of how they seem to be. Listening with our whole being, we might say. Listening with ourselves. Listening with the fullness of awareness. So, there may be a lot of um, depth and nuance to what you know, knowing can be. For some of us, that knowing becomes a kind of refuge, knowing, intellectual knowing, cognitive knowing, knowing about. You know. And there's a place of a kind of, the, the, the place of abstraction, right? an abstract knowing becomes somewhere comfortable, somewhere a little removed from the ambiguity and the messiness of the world. I don't know what the hell it would be to know a tree, so I'll know about trees instead. Right? I don't know what kind of vulnerability or openness I might fall into in really knowing the contact with another p human being. So I'll retreat into knowing about things. Oh, let me tell you about uh, something I know. That feels like a safer place. So we tend to live, some of us, in abstraction. Or we live in cleverness. We rely on what we know as a kind of anchor, as a refuge. And again, just to make it clear, I'm not trying to be anti-intellectual in any way. It's a really, really fantastic capacity right, to be able to think and reflect and know about things. I'm not suggesting we try to turn off our knowing about. If you turned off any of that knowing about, how are you going to get back to London? Right? Or wherever you're going. No. It's really, you know, it's really fantastic human capacity. And it's a partial capacity. It's a limited capacity. And we have to see if that's our style, if our style is to retreat into abstraction and cleverness and knowledge and knowing about, it might be really, really worth us asking ourselves, how come? 
really asking ourselves, who do I think I'd be if I put aside my knowledge about life, about myself? What might happen if I let myself not know anything? What might it be like to sit in meditation and not know what this body is? Not know about breathing, lungs, oxygen, carbon dioxide, diaphragm, etc.? What might breathing be if I didn't know about it and I just actually let myself know it, get to know it? That knowing from the inside that we've been speaking about. What might it be like to sit here if I let myself not know about time? You know? What might it be like to just sit here and meditate without measuring how much time is left? And comparing that, you know, to all our other reference points for for the sense of time. What might it be like to sit in meditation here and put aside what I think I know about self and world, inner and outer? And just actually know directly the intimacy between the sensing of life, the sensations that appear, the fact that the sensations appear here in awareness without any regard for inner or outer. So there's that invitation if we want to really freely know, deeply know, fully know life. To set aside our cleverness, our knowing about. It won't disappear. It won't desert you. It'll be there as soon as you need it. And sometimes that's the fear. It's like, I, I know who I am in that abstract world. I know a lot about Martin and about life and about trees or whatever it is. And if I don't rely on that, I don't know who I'll be or how I'll be or how reality will appear. Well, that's true. We don't know. Maybe it's really worth uh, the risk of finding out the profound, vast, limitless possibility of finding out. Some of us, the and get more caught in, in on the other side of knowing. And get caught in anxiety about not knowing. Or I don't know. And the fact that I don't know and I feel like I ought to know, I should know, or I feel like others know, and then I feel some sense of deficiency around that not knowing. Uh, that there's something wrong with me. 
and I hear others expressing views and opinions about things and I don't know. And I go small or quiet or deficient feeling. I hear others uh, seeming to be knowledgeable about things and I have the impression that I should know something too. And my lack of knowing about feels like some kind of uh, wrongness or brokenness about me. And then, if that's the case, we either sometimes bluff our way through, we pretend that we know. You you can do it about all kinds of things. Apparently, I read an interesting thing in The Guardian a while ago about the books, like famous books that most people haven't actually read, but pretend to read. Like well, the War and Peace, I know, was one of them, right? So somebody, maybe you've been those, maybe you have some of those social circles where some people are very literary, maybe, right? Or at least appear to be very literary, and they're always making references to, you know, obscure film directors and literary works and things. Oh, you know that so and so by so and so. Oh yes, yes. Oh yes, I know, right? So some of us we do that. We bluff. We pretend to know, and underneath there's a kind of panic or hollowness because we don't know but we obviously should know because others do or some of us we kind of collapse and go quiet in that not knowing so some of us get caught in the thicket of our own knowing about of our own knowledge some of us get caught in the kind of anxiety about the absence of knowing I was thinking about this this afternoon and it reminded me of this lovely poem by R.D. Lang. He was a Scottish, very interesting kind of experimental uh, Scottish psychologist and psychotherapist. There's a great, um, there's a great uh, biopic documentary film about his life on Netflix, which you can see, played by David Tennant. It's really good. I can't remember the title. It's just a literary reference there. Uh, okay, so this is this is the poem. He says, There is something I don't know that I am supposed to know. I don't know what it is I don't know, and yet I am supposed to know. And I feel I look stupid if I seem both not to know it and not to know what it is I don't know. Therefore, I pretend to know it. This is nerve-wracking since I don't know what I must pretend to know. Therefore, I pretend to know everything. I feel that you know what I'm supposed to know, but you can't tell me what it is because you don't know that I don't know what it is. You may know what I don't know, but not that I don't know it, and I can't tell you, so you will have to tell me everything. So that's that's some of the friction right, that we get into around knowing and not knowing, knowing about and not knowing about. And of course, meditation practice is one that, that very directly and powerfully actually encourages us to just to not discard our knowing about, right, but to also not settle 
to not settle just for knowing about stuff. Meditation is really a realm where we get to see the limitation of knowing about. You can know everything about breathing and it will not help you to know your breath. So we make a practice of gently, like I say, not discarding, not judging, not suppressing, not uh, making any kind of problem out of the habitual knowing about stuff, but also not settling for it. We make a practice out of just coming underneath, coming back from knowing about to knowing from the inside. Knowing the breathing from inside the breathing, knowing the sensations from inside the sensations, knowing the emotions from inside the emotions. And when we first start to do that, if we have some kind of surprising experience or deep experience or still experience, then of course familiar mind, knowing about, quickly rushes in. Says, oh, what's happening here? Oh, yes, now I'm really inside the breathing. Oh, yes, that's totally, that's what the Buddha must have meant. And then we start to know about it, and then that kind of corrupts the experience, right? But, okay, just keep, keep, keep on coming underneath the knowing about. And we find we can increasingly abide in a more direct knowing, a more intimate knowing, a more full-spectrum knowing that doesn't need to be uh, reduced to language, concept, idea, description, analysis. At first, that can just feel like a kind of a certain blessed relief. Like just, oh, it's peaceful to really get to know experience rather than knowing about experience. Knowing about experience is quite noisy usually, quite busy. As we dare to not know about what's happening, we dare to rest into that direct knowing, we find it sort of opens up. We discover a capacity for non-conceptual knowing. Or what we might call the stillness of knowing, an intimate knowing. And that's very interesting, very important, right? If most of our lives have been defined by conceptual knowing, knowing in terms of ideas and memories and language and images, And like we were saying earlier, our memory only goes back as far as we had the capacity to construct those ideas and images. Then when we start to be able to stabilize, in a way, in non-conceptual knowing, then we start to have access to non-conceptual experience. You can't really have access to non-conceptual experience except in for brief moments if you're relying on conceptual knowing. Is that clear when I say it like that? I don't see much nodding. <laughs> okay. Is it, not, is it not clear? Give me a sign. It's clear. Good, I'll take your word. She says it's clear. Okay. You can't have access 
to non-conceptual experience, except for in brief moments, if you're relying on conceptual knowledge. And yet as we start to settle into non-conceptual awareness, not relying on language, ideas, images, then the, the, the realm of our experience opens up. It opens up beyond the conceptual. In all kinds of ways. Beyond the conceptual relationship of self and world, inner and outer, here and there, me and you, to a more inclusive uh, contact with experience. A more intimate uh, sense of belonging to and participating in and being the world. And also opens up in terms of time. Um, you might find that actually we start to be able to remember pre-conceptually. And those that we start to be able to remember experience before we had language, before we had concept. And those might be memories of being a very young baby. They might be memories actually in the womb. They might be memories that point back even previously to any kind of uh, memory that seems to belong to this life. And those kind of memories, of course, they don't appear in the way that normal memories, because normal memories are based on conceptual knowing. I remember when I did that. So the so preconceptual memory has a very different form and flavor to it. But it can become as unmistakable, as as clear and as obvious as conceptual memories are to us. Because, you know, or as our non-conceptual awareness becomes increasingly obvious and available to us. And this whole realm of experience, which we call life, sensory life, emotional life, memory life, and all the sense-making that we do of life can have opened up into so much more dimensionality when we're not just reliant on the narrow field of conceptual knowing. And, in the midst of all that, before you get busy trying to think about, and here's a futile activity for you, trying to think about non-conceptual awareness. (laughs) Oh God, (laughs) that's not the cul-de-sac I want to lead you into. So, let's not go there. So, and... What's the heart of knowing? What's the essence of knowing? We might look all over the place. What's the heart of knowing? What's the essence of knowing? But what if you come back if we come right back to the heart and essence of everything, which is already right here? The heart and essence of things could never be elsewhere. Right? 
how are you going to look elsewhere? So if we come back just to the heart and essence of things, what's the knowing that's here right now? What's the knowing that's always present? What's the knowing that's consistently, fundamentally, essentially available to you? Always. Regardless of conditions. What's the pragya paramita? Just a fancy Pali word. It means the, the the knowing, the knowing that goes beyond. I just had lunch today with Christopher Titmus, an old teacher and mentor to me, and old friend for thirty years, founder of Gaia House. And we just met for lunch in Totnes. It was very nice to see him. And on the way back, I started to think, oh, what, what am I going to talk about? this afternoon and in thinking about talking about knowing I I remembered a time sitting with him maybe 20 years 25 years more (laughs) ago and him asking a small group of us exactly that what's the knowing that goes beyond he says here are the four possibilities for knowing you know what's happening Second possibility, you don't know what's happening. Third possibility, you know some of what's happening, but not all of it. Fourth possibility, you don't know whether you know what's happening or not. That covers all bases, I think, right? In any situation, I I know what this is, or I don't know what this is, or uh, I know some of what this is, not all of it, or I don't even know whether I know what this is or not. This is Buddhist stuff. Right, Buddhists like to cover all bases with the teachings. Right, all possibilities. So, can you think of another possibility? You know, or you don't know, or you know some but not others, or you don't know whether you know or not. That covers all situations, right? So, what's the pragya paramita? What's the ultimate knowing? What's the freest knowing? What's the knowing that's available regardless in any situation of whether I know what this is or don't know what this is or know some of what this is or don't even know whether I know or not. Whether I understand or don't understand or partially understand or don't understand whether I understand or not. Those are the situations we find ourselves. You, me, the Buddha. right? In any given moment, in any situation, we don't get to choose that. Sometimes we know and we understand. Sometimes we don't know. We don't understand. Sometimes we partially understand. Sometimes we just don't even know whether we know or not. What's the knowing that undercuts all of those four situations or underpins all those situations? The knowing that's available in the midst of. The knowing that doesn't need to know about. The knowing that cannot be intimidated by not knowing. 
the knowing that illuminates experience, the knowing that's right here, the knowing that's sitting, feeling, sensing, the knowing that is by its nature fundamentally open to experience. The knowing that's hearing these words. The knowing that's understanding or not understanding or partially understanding or not knowing whether or not you understand or not these words. The knowing that has limitless depth and dimensionality. The knowing that can contain and penetrate and follow all of our experience. The knowing that's freely available, freely expressible, freely inclusive of all that's known. A knowing that this practice invites us into. Moment by moment by moment. Regardless of mind state. Regardless of clarity or confusion, pleasure or pain. The knowing wherein we can find our homecoming. A knowing wherein we can find wisdom clarity, and most essentially the knowing within which we can find reconciliation with our own life. That's the promise and the real possibility of this practice. So please hang out in this knowing, friends, and see what shows up in it. There's half an hour or so for that hanging out in sitting form or walking form until the bell for supper. <laughs>